following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. I'm sure that all of us as adults have heard, if not said, the best laid plans of mice and men. Now the origin of that I could not find, but it's always used in a context that you have laid out some careful plans and they've all gone awry. And in response to your plans going astray, the statement is the best laid plans of mice and men. We can plan well. We can never foresee all the different things could occur. We can plan well, but we can't control those forces outside of us. Perhaps you boys and girls will remember Pa in uh, uh, the Laura Ingalls series, Little House on the Prairie. And, and Pa was known in the community as a very wise man. And people often sought his counsel because he was a wise man. But he was not perfectly wise. Sometimes, in some of the episodes, his wisdom really led to great problems. And nor was he a very powerful man. So he'd have to stand at the bedside of his firstborn son and watch him die. You see, our wisdom is always limited and our power even more so in order to accomplish even good plans that we have. And you wrestle with that. You understand how oftentimes the machinery in life is broken that either your plans weren't good plans and they failed, or they actually were good plans and yet you didn't foresee different things that could happen, different contingencies, or you never ever have the power to get others to do what ought to be done in order to uh, accomplish good purposes. You wrestle with that. You wrestle with it every day in your life. You wrestle with it in big things in, in your families. But see, over against that, this limited wisdom and power of men. The Holy Spirit instructs us here in Job uh, chapter 12 about the infinite wisdom and power of a sovereign God. What a glorious message we've just read here in verses 13 through 25. What a great insight into God. I remind you that Job is wisdom literature. And as I've often said to you, we're not going through all these dialogues simply to get to the great climax at the end. No, the Spirit is designed the unfolding of the conversation to continue to, to teach us the lows of life and the struggles that Job has and that we have, but also these great insights. And here's probably one of the most compact, glorious statements about the wisdom, the omnipotence, the powerful, sovereign God who is our God. Now, you remember in chapter 12 that Job is responding now to the third of his friends, Zophar, he has rebuked Zophar for his arrogance, and he's directed Zophar and the friend's attention, and even ours, to what people, particularly the regenerate, can come to understand from simply observing creation. How creation itself would teach that it's not just the uh, wicked that suffer, that little animals are eaten by big mean animals, little birds by big birds, little fish by big fish. Even creation itself teaches us that there is an apparent injustice in, in destruction, in the hierarchies that take place in the world. 
And Job, in verse 12, ends them with the fact that aged men can have wisdom and by God's Spirit observe from the creation, that general revelation of God. But Job moves beyond that to things that he's been taught by the Holy Spirit. Here in verses 13 through 25, things the Holy Spirit would teach you and me this morning. And the essence of that is that our God is wise and powerful, who's the preserver and governor of all of his creatures and all of their actions. Our God is the wise and powerful preserver and governor of all of his creatures and all of their actions. We'll look at the statement of this doctrine in verses 13 and 14, that God is the wise and powerful sovereign God. We see then this doctrine proven from creation itself uh, in this very brief discussion about water um, in verse 15. And then in 16 through 25, uh, he shows us, he proves this truth from the affairs of men. But we begin with a statement in verses 13 and 14. If you look at those words, with him, that is with God, our wisdom and might, to him belong counsel and understanding. Behold, he tears down, and it cannot be rebuilt. He imprisons a man, and there can be no release. Now, there's an implied contrast here. If you take the with him, go back to verses 11 and 12, uh, right before this. Does not the ear test words, the palate taste food. So that just as with your senses, you can tell the difference between uh, sweet and and sour. Uh, wisdom is with aged men, with long life is understanding. That there is wisdom that God gives to men, but notice the contrast. With him, with God, is a specific, infinite. With God is wisdom, power, to him belong counsel and understanding. These four things are divided into two pairs. In the first place, with God are wisdom and might. The God as the Doxology declares is the only wise God. He is the embodiment. He is the uh, fullness of all wisdom. He is wisdom. There is no wisdom apart from him. Thus wisdom, a divine, glorious, beautiful wisdom, marks him and everything that he does. But with that wisdom comes then a might. There is an omnipotence. You remember that uh, in this book God is referred to as, as Shaddai, the Almighty One. God Almighty, the God who delights in overturning the purposes and the thrust of nature in order to accomplish the purposes of grace. For in God, his hand is not weak. God will accomplish everything that he determines. Which brings us to the second pair, which seems to point then actually to God's decree. So that Job will write or say, to him belong counsel and understanding. Because he has all wisdom and might, then he has within him this divine counsel. His decree, that by which he has foreordained all that comes to pass, and that he then executes by his glorious might and strength the fulfillment of all that comes to pass. His decree is shaped with all understanding. There are no surprises. He knows exactly the end from the beginning. He knows exactly everything that could go awry, but does not go awry because God himself is in control. So he set before us the all-wise God, the all-powerful God, the God who has foreordained all that comes to pass and has done so with a perfect understanding. Well, Job gives an illustration of this then in verse 14 
Behold, he's drawing our attention now to this illustration about God's wisdom and might. He tears down and it cannot be rebuilt. He imprisons a man and there can be no release. So the God is the one who builds up, but God is the one who tears down. Isaiah writes, or God says through Isaiah in 50, 25, Isaiah 25, 2, For you, God, made a city into a heap, a fortified city into a ruin. A palace of strangers is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. We see this often in God's history, don't we? The Tower of Babel uh, is no more. Sodom and Gomorrah are no more. The cities of Edom are no more. God has built up cities. God tears down cities. God in his wisdom, in his might, has determined those cities will never again be rebuilt as he exercises his power. And then he says that he imprisons a man and actually shuts him up and there can be no release. If a man or woman goes to prison, it's God who puts them in prison. If they go to prison unjustly, it's God who has put them in prison. And from that prison, there will be no release unless God releases them from prison. Think about two kings of Judah who were imprisoned in Babylon. There was Jeconiah. He was released. He was exalted to the highest throne next to the king. But we never read again about Zedekiah, do we? He's blinded, he's put in prison, and he is not released. And so it is, even in those very practical affairs of men. But of course, in Job's situation, we think he's, he's imprisoned in his, his um, awful, debilitating illness from which there does seem to be no release. In the circumstances of his life, where he actually thinks he's doomed now, soon to die in this, this uh, condition. Um, uh, we think as well, though, of God, those that God imprisons in death. You know, boys and girls, when God locks you into death, there is no release. There's no return from death until our Savior himself returns. But of course, the worst imprisonment is the imprisonment of hell itself, where God imprisons men and women and boys and girls into that prison house forever, from which there never is a release. God is wise and powerful. God's counsel is full of understanding. God destroys and it's not rebuilt. God imprisons and there's no release. Now, as we think about this and we move into the more specific declarations of providence, it's remarkable how wonderful this fits our discussion in Sunday school today about God's providence in our lives and in contentment. God wants you to understand these things. He is in absolute control. Now, he's proven this from the negative, but he's in absolute control, and thus he makes no mistakes, and his purposes always in your life are going to be fulfilled. Do you believe that? That's what he wants you to understand. So Job moves on now by the Holy Spirit, and he demonstrates this truth from creation itself. In verse 15, behold, again, shining the light on this. Look at verse 15, because it's a spotlight. Behold, he restrains the waters 
and they dry up. He sends them out and they inundate the earth. Now the word dried up is actually a word that's used here in, in Genesis chapter 1. And surely Job has this in mind. It'll come up later in the book as well. In verses 9 and 10 of the day of creation, the third day, God said, Let waters below the heavens be gathered into one place. Let dry land appear immediately. This wet land was dry land, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called sea, and God saw that it was good. So here we see that uh, God restrains the waters. He separates them, immediately dries the land. The psalmist talks about the earth lying upon the waters. Um, and it's a remarkable thing, isn't it? Have you ever stood at the, at the seashore and marveled at the fact that the, that the water comes so far and no further? What is it that restrains the water from again covering the earth? It is, it is the word of God. It's not the moon. It's God himself who is operating, separating the water from the dry land. Now, because of one of strange water, he's the one that sends drought then. So in 1 Kings chapter 17, he instructs Elijah to pray uh, that the rain would cease for three and a half years and the land is dried up and it's full of drought. God continues to do that. There's no drought in the world. There's no drought in Kenya or Ethiopia except that which God himself has sent. Then, of course, there's a great diversity of rain itself. And we find this wonderful statement about drought and rain in Amos chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Furthermore, I withheld the rain from you while there were still three months until harvest. Then I would send rain on one city, and on another city I would not send rain. One part would be rained on, while the part not rained on would dry up. So two or three cities would stagger to another city to drink water, but would not be satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. You see, he is the master of the rain. It rains only when and where he wants it to rain. And rain is indeed a remarkable thing. You've been in the airplane. You go through this wispy cloud, and it throws the plane all over the place. And that cloud's full of water. And yet the water is restrained there as in the womb. And it only comes out when God wills it to, to come out. He, he sends rain when and where he pleases. And then he says that uh, he sends out these waters and they inundate, uh, overturn the earth. And obviously Job has in mind the great flood, where God then sent out waters that he had separated from the dry land. And those waters, with those waters, God overturned the earth, shaped it to be a completely different place now than it was before the waters covered the earth. And although by his covenant promise, such a general flood no longer takes place, God still sends floods. He still overturns the earth by floods of water. Now, I think it's quite remarkable that at, out of all the things in creation that uh, Job could have used to illustrate the wise strength of God, he chooses water. Because water and wind are probably the things that we can least control. By God's grace, we've made great advances in, in marshalling the sources and resources of, of God's creation, and that's our responsibility. And we have made great advances in, in controlling uh, flooding and such, but we never stop flooding, can we? 
There's always flooding. And now we live in a day when perhaps the Mississippi River is at the lowest it's ever been historically. It's actually then a whole chain of events. The river's down, the barges are down, the transportation system is down. All because God controls the water. You don't control the water. Well, you can turn on a faucet, but you don't control the water. God alone controls the rain. God alone controls the water. Even the remarkable cycle uh, that the Bible often celebrates of, of evaporation and collection and rain, all by the great, wise, powerful hand of God. So when you're tempted to question the wisdom and understanding, the might and power of God, just look at the rain today. Just be mindful of the fact that God is the one who absolutely and wisely controls the distribution of water. But then the major portion of this paragraph is the third part, the demonstration of this truth of God's wise, powerful providence from the affairs of men. And Job begins with that which is probably the most difficult thing for us, with the matter of sin. Then he moves to the general affairs of the community politic. And then to the very unfolding of the inscrutable uh, things that are only revealed by God in a great wrap-up with God's power over the most powerful. But it begins, if you'll look at um, verse 16, repeating this statement. Notice now he changes the words. You don't see it as much as the English. You see a change in the order. With him are strength. Not just might now, but with God are strength and sound wisdom. It's a more particular word than the word that's used uh, in verse 13. With him is wisdom. Sound wisdom. Now how is the Holy Spirit going to illustrate the strength and sound wisdom of God? He's going to do so in the first place in the whole area of sin. Now look carefully at the second half of verse 16. The misled and the misleader. The deceiver and the deceived belong to him. Do you see what God or what Job is saying here about God? When he says that the deceiver, the misleader belongs to God, he's saying God is the one who is controlling the evil ones, yes, even the deceivers of mankind. Of course, we read that and uh, I hope that you'll think about one of the more entertaining uh, illustrations of it, and that is in 1 Kings chapter 22, when God is now ready to fulfill his uh, promise to destroy Ahab in a specific way. And all the false prophets have told him to go up to battle, but the one true prophet of God, Micaiah, is summoned. In verse 19, Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. And all the host of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. So here's that figure that we also had in the book of Job, the counsel of God. The Lord said, who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this, while another said that. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. The Lord said, how? He said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And then he said, you are to entice him, 
and also prevail. Go and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets, and the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. Now, our God is pure. Our God is not tempted to sin. Our God's not the author of sin, but because he's all wise and powerful, he controls everything going on. It was God's will that this evil demon would go forth as a liar, a deceiver, and would succeed in deceiving the false prophets and through them Ahab. Now God in his wisdom is uh, innocent with respect to sin, but his purpose is being uh, fulfilled. And the prophets then are deceived and Ahab is killed in battle. Now, the same truth is also evident spiritually with respect to what God does in our lives. So Deuteronomy chapter 13, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams rises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign of the wonder comes true, concerning which he spoke to you saying, so here's a false prophet and he gives a sign or a wonder. Uh, I think in my youth, uh, those false prophets that... Uh, prophesied stuff like the assassination of President Kitty and everything, and God let them have certain insights. So they spoke to you, let us go after other gods whom you've not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you. So now the false prophet's coming. But through the false prophet, you notice the Lord God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him. You shall keep his commandments. Listen to his voice. Serve him. Cling to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he's counseled rebellion against the Lord. God does this, you see. God will send forth false teachers and they will mislead and those will be misled. That's why I chose this passage in, in 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, where we read of the, uh, the man of sin, the, the ultimate uh, antichrist who is, is coming uh, to deceive uh, the people. And it, it says in verse 9 that his coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and wonders. You think they're Deuteronomy chapter 13. Uh, and false wonders with all the deception of wickedness. He is the misleader. For those who perish... But now notice this, because they did not receive the love of truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Now we recognize that can happen to the reprobate, but Paul gives us a warning in 2 Timothy about each of us as hearers of his word in chapter 4 as he deals with preaching. He says, The time will come in verse 3 when they will not endure sound doctrine. They, you, the congregation, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to miss. It's always a danger in the church. We drove to church this morning. Drove by one particular liberal church and I thought, there's a parking lot full of cars of deceived people. They go every Lord's Day fairly faithfully to that church 
where I know that only error is being taught. And yet God has given them over to the spirit of delusion. How he's done that in the church today. My wife just was telling me this morning about one of these uh, health, wealth, and prosperity people. Millions of dollars through the fraud, and yet people gladly will give them their life savings because God's given them a spirit of delusion. You need to understand that uh, it is a great danger. It's a great danger spiritually. It's something that can happen to any of us. If you harden your heart, my dear friends, against any clear doctrine or commandment of God and deliberately turn away from it, it's quite possible that your chastening would be God would give you a spirit of delusion. Of course, we also see it, don't we, in the broader culture. I mean, when people who will say that uh, you can be a different gender than a man or a woman. It's preposterous. It's preposterous. And yet they say it with a perfectly straight face because God has given them over to a spirit of delusion. Everything that comes out of their mouths this day is under the spirit of delusion. But I want you to notice who gave that to them. Oh, yes, Satan is active in this. But it is the Lord God, the Lord God, who sends forth deceivers and the deceived. So it begins here with his, his and you see, it's, just his, it's his wisdom that he's able to do this and himself be pure. And it's his power that not one of these plans of his will ever fail in accomplishing the end purposes that God has designed. Well, then we move on. <coughs> And we see in verses 17 uh, through 21, he simply looks around. You could actually consider what you find in many of the prophets. Uh, and he, what he's judging here is the prophets, the priests, and the kings. So in verse 17, he makes counselors walk barefoot and makes fools of judges, those who should be the wise within the culture, the prophets of the culture are barefoot, they're stripped of all dignity, they're fools, and once again we hear the judgment of fools uh, in our own judiciary, uh, declaring that uh, a man married to a woman should be a, a right or a right to change um, your gender or whatever. Uh, he, he loosens the bonds of kings. In other words, he, he takes away their power to rule. He makes them weak. Not only does he make them weak, he binds their loins with a girdle, verse 18, which means he turns them into slaves. He makes kings servants. And then priests in, in the religious life of the culture, they too walk barefoot. They too lose their dignity. And they are the secured ones. They are the righteous ones. And they're overthrown. Verse 20, he deprives the trusted ones of speech. They lose their persuasiveness. He takes away the discernment of elders. You know, when you read here about counselors walking barefoot and um, the trusted ones being deprived of speech, don't you think of Ahithophel, the great counselor of David who went over uh, to Absalom in the rebellion and gave really good counsel <laughs> to Absalom for the defeat of David. And Hushai sent by David, uh, countered that with another counsel, and God took away the persuasiveness of Hithophel and of his wisdom and gave Absalom over to folly. This is not a thing like this that takes place. It's apart from the hand of God. He, then he pours contempt on nobles, and he loosens the belts of the strong ones. 
Those who think they're great and wonderful are held in contempt by God and are absolutely weakened. Verse 22, he refers to the wisdom and might of God with respect to revelation. He reveals mysteries from the darkness and brings uh, deep darkness into light. God is, able, God is able to untangle that which is completely untangleable by men. So when Daniel uh, is called on to reveal Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he says in verse 22 of chapter 2, It is he, God, who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. He pulls out of the minds of men that which he would unfold. He reveals that which has been hidden. He brings to light the secret motives of men. Even as Paul then says, we all wait on God to be our judge, and we leave our affairs to him in 1 Chronicles 4, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring to light the hidden things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, then each man's praise will come to him from God. That there'll be a time of judgment. There'll be a time when God who will bring light out of darkness. The God who will expose, in fact, uh, every hidden motive, every secret sin. You might think today that you are getting away with it, but you're not getting away with it. God is going to bring light out of darkness. Even as Paul writes to Timothy about the uh, judgment of God in chapter 5, verses 24 and 25. The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins will follow after. In other words, it's not all exposed in this life. But on the day of judgment, God will bring forth all light, all motives, all hidden dark deeds. Likewise, also the deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. They shall not always be blessed by God for your goodness in this life, but it will not be concealed on the day of judgment. So he's showing this wise power of God over sin, over the affairs of men, over the unfolding of deep things of darkness. And he wraps it up now with these last three verses. God's greatness. He makes nations great. And we're not just now talking about a king here or a ruler there or a priest. He makes nations great then destroys them. He enlarges the nations and leads them away. He deprives of intelligence the chiefs of earth's people and makes them wander in a pathless waste. They grope in darkness with no light. He makes them stagger like a drunken man. Is history not itself replete with all the examples of this as God makes one nation great and then leads it away? Assyria, Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks and the Romans and the Muslims, one empire after another, raised up by God in his sovereign purposes, led away by God. In his sovereign purposes. Now you know he's raised up America and Britain. Take for example Canada for whom we prayed this morning. He has raised us up. But by his grace we will become third world countries. Because those whom he raises up. If we raise our fist in his face. He then also will lead us away. He will deprive our leaders of all intelligence. The word means heart. We surely see that today don't we? 
as leaders of the nations of the earth are wandering as in a pathless waste, groping in darkness with no light. I think about Elymas the magician there um, when Paul um, pronounces that curse on him and he's wandering around in darkness, trying to find someone to, to lead him. That's a figure here, uh, or even like a drunk man staggering in the night. So this is a remarkable catalog of just things that we all can observe looking back over the history of the human race and see that what Job tells us here about the spirit is absolutely true. That our God is wise. Our God is powerful. But there's one thing, isn't there, that Job doesn't know yet and that you do know. And that is that the greatest manifestation of God's wisdom and power uh, was in the incarnation. In this remarkable act by which God, the per second person of God, took to himself a human nature. And the most wise way that God determined to redeem those whom he chose from eternity. That the just one could be the justifier of sinners and bring all glory to himself in the process. There is no more wonderful display, dear friends. None of the wisdom and understanding and power and counsel of God than in the great plan of redemption and in the glorious Savior. And because he's Savior then, it is through him that you must read a passage like this, you see? Because to him has been given all authority and power in heaven and on earth. As the mediatorial king of kings and lord of lords, he is the grand director. He is the mighty general. He's the one that's instrumenting every one of these things here in principle, every single thing that you and I see worked out being operated at the hands of King Jesus. Some of you get a bit fearful about this puppet master, whoever he might be, who is back there manipulating the economy and, and the war in Ukraine and, and everything else. And it looks so dark. Do you understand who manipulates the manipulator? Who is over the deceiver? And who's over the deceived? Dear friends, do not fear. Christ is on the throne. Not a thing is happening apart from his glorious, divine, loving, good pleasure. Because it's not just the wisdom and power of God. It is the love of God that is in him. It is the promise of God because you're in him that all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. No evil can befall you. Yes, bitter things can come. But the stinger's been taken out. Christ is on the throne. And he is absolutely accomplishing his purposes. And every one of us, and everything that's going on, Every place in the world are all a part of that grand scheme. It's a great truth, isn't it? That our God is wisely and powerfully ruling and governing all of his creatures and all their actions. Even as it's summarized for us in our larger catechism. 18. What are God's works of providence? God's works of providence is most holy Wise and powerful. You hear those two words. Wise and powerful. Preserving and governing all of his creatures. Ordering them and all their actions to his own glory. And so look up and adore him. 
praise him. Bow before him in humble adoration. Yes, even in the affairs of your life, whereas we'll talk about this in Sunday school, you're, you're prone to, to want to push back against uh, his providence. Let me remind you of those wonderful confession of David. Oh Lord, my heart's not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor would I involve myself in great matters, things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child. Rest against his mother. Now the non-weaned child is not resting. He's groping. But the weaned child. Rest my soul like a weaned child within me. Oh Israel. That's you. Hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Yeah, rest in him dear friends. And delight in him. But here also heed the warning that we have now in this passage of scripture. Do you dare this day lift your fist in the face of God? You dare this day say you will oppose him and live life your way and not his way. Do you not see that 6,000 years of human history is strewn with the carcasses of not just men and women, but of whole cultures and kingdoms that have resisted God? My friend, you cannot resist God. You cannot defeat God. God sets before you two ways this morning. God says, submit to me in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I will deliver you from your sins. But he says, if you refuse to submit to me, then understand that I am all wise and powerful, and I will imprison, and none shall ever let you out. Let us pray. Oh, glorious and gracious God, we marvel at this catalog, this wonderful insight that your spirit gave to Job even before scriptures were written about you. Oh, grant that we who have all your word would know you even better, love you even more. How we thank you for Christ, our King and prophet, our Savior, and who is over all of these things for our sake, for the church. Oh, Lord, let us be comforted here and not be fearful. Let us bow in humble adoration. And Lord, if anyone here this morning is persisting in rebellion, whether it's a child or an adult, would your spirit even now break their heart and bring them in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.